Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapter 79, 80, 81 and 82 of The Da Vinci Code. So where we left off, they were still on that bloody plane and they opened up the cryptex to find a second smaller cryptex inside, which was just such a bloody cock tease, wasn't it? And there was also another riddle, which we only heard the first line of, something about a pope and turning a knight. And we didn't get the rest of the riddle. We're left in suspense on that one. Meanwhile, Aringaros is flying to London. Fash presumably is flying to London. Everyone's heading towards London because we're sick of Paris. We're sick of it. So, hello, hello, hello. We're going to London. But <laughs> I don't know why I just contradicted myself. Chapter 79, we're actually with Lieutenant Colette, the worst policeman in the world, and he's still in Paris. So, let's just touch base with him, see how he's doing. So, Lieutenant Colette is just helping himself to a Perrier from T-Bing's refrigerator. Okay, what a life. You can't just help yourself to people's sparkling water in their fridges. Like that's, that's not okay. That's theft. And he's annoyed that Fash is on his way to London and he's stuck here looking at evidence and stuff. He's like, oh, I want to be somewhere where the action is. I want to be where the people are. And he says, so far, the evidence they'd uncovered at the Chateau Villette was entirely unhelpful. Okay, he says, a single bullet buried in the floor, a paper with several symbols scrawled on it with the words blade and chalice, and a bloody spiked belt that he's been told is associated with the conservative Catholic group Opus Dei, who had recently caused a stir. Of course, they recently caused a stir. Everything's recent with the Opus Dei. They caused a stir recently when a news program exposed their recruiting practices in Paris. Okay, so that's, that's the evidence that he's got that he says is unhelpful. And I'm like, I'm sorry. The bloody spiked belt is unhelpful. It's unhelpful to have blood at the crime scene. Like, surely that DNA evidence is actually quite helpful. I mean, you're not at a loss. And he's like, ugh. And he sighs and he's like, good luck making sense of this. So then he goes to have a chat to someone who's dusting for fingerprints, you know, also useless evidence. And we're told that this CSI person is a corpulent man in suspenders. What an odd descriptor. Like, we don't get descriptions on anybody else's bodies, but apparently some fatty boomba, he's dusting for fingerprints. So, okay, glad we know that he's corpulent. Anyway, they're just finding multiple sets of fingerprints that match the rest of the house. Big whoop. And the corpulent man has also sealed up some evidence that he thinks is peculiar. And it's a photo of the entrance to a cathedral. Specifically, 
the archway. Remember because how they thought that was the clue to the Holy Grail or some bullshit? And on the back, it says in English, it says that the cathedral's long hollow nave is a secret pagan tribute to a woman's womb. And Colette's like, what? He thinks the cathedral's entrance represent a woman's hoo-ha? And the guy's like, yeah, the corpulent guy. He's like, yeah. Complete with receding labial ridges and a nice little sinkerfoil clitoris above the doorway. Yuck. Kind of makes you want to go back to church. He jokes like, what? You want to go back to church because you think the entrance looks like a clit? Like, that's creepy. I'm sorry, what are you going to, you're going to sit in the pews at church looking at the archway and getting a boner? Like, because you're looking at something that looks like a clit? What, why would he comment on that? Why would this corpulent man in suspenders comment on that? That's so bizarre. And then they find the secret list (laughs) that reveals all of the leaders of the Priory of Sion. (laughs) Remember how that secret society accidentally leaked the whole list of all their membership? (laughs) Yeah. So he's going through that. So we've got Jean de Gisors, Marie de Sinclair. Presumably Marie is a male name because they don't have females in the Priory of Sion. Jean de Bar, Nicolas Flamel. He was apparently the grandmaster from 1398 to 1418. Now, I don't know if that's a coincidence or if it's the same guy from Harry Potter because I assumed JK Turf Rowling, she came up with Nicolas Flamel, but apparently that's a real person that existed. How about that? How about bloody that? Okay, Botticelli, Da Vinci. And then as history progresses, the names become less exotic. So we go from <laughs> Connetable de Bourbon and Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Botticelli. And then we get Robert Flood. <laughs> and then we get Robert Boyle. <laughs> Boring. Then Isaac Newton. It's really just a long list of names. Victor Hugo, Claude Debussy. And then it stops. Okay. So we don't know who the current grandmaster is. I mean, we know. It keeps getting revealed to Robert Langdon and he's surprised every chapter, but we know that it was, what's his face that got killed in the Louvre? God, I forget his name already. Grandpere. Jacques Saunier. That's what it is. I'm the worst person to be recapping these books. (laughs) So then some agent, he says, well, we don't get an idea of his body shape, surprisingly, but another agent sticks his head in and he goes, oh, Lieutenant Collette, someone's calling for Fash, but they can't reach him. So do you want to take this phone call? And he's like, all right. And it's Vernet, the Swiss banker. And Vernet's like, um, I was expecting a call from Fash and he hasn't gotten back to me. Like, what's that about? And Colette's like, yeah, he's busy. And he's like, well, I was told I would be kept abreast of your progress tonight. Like, man, Vernet, stop making demands of the police considering you helped them escape. You helped the fugitives escape your bank. Like, you're in the bad books, dude. I don't think you get to be like getting confidential information out of the police when you should be locked up, quite frankly. And- Remember, because Colette's met Vernet when Vernet was pretending to be the truck driver, the truck driver with the fake Rolex that was actually a real Rolex, and Colette was like, all right, go on through. Colette's like, huh, I recognize the timber of the man's voice, but I can't quite place it. And then Colette goes, well, my name's Lieutenant Colette. I'm in charge of the Paris investigation. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I'd say you're in charge. I think Fash is still in charge. He's just on his way to London. And Vernet must recognize the name because he's like, oh, what's that? I'm going through a tunnel and he just hangs up. And then Colette's like, that was weird. And then he's like, wait a minute. Oh, I recognize that voice. And the revelation made him gasp. He's like, oh, the the armored car driver with the fake Rolex, which I didn't check. I didn't check the back of the car, like whoopsie daisy. And so he knows he's in shit because instinctively he knew he should call Fash, but emotionally He knew this lucky break was going to be his moment to shine. Oh, wait, no. So he doesn't feel regret at letting the the fugitives escape. 
he just doesn't want to reveal it to Fash because he wants the glory. And it's like, no, I think you'll be reprimanded for fucking up so badly, Colette. I don't think this is like one step in your career path. Anyway, so then he calls Interpol, wanting all the dish on Vernet. End of chapter. Then we go to chapter 80 and T-Bing's pilot, he's like, everyone put your seatbelts on because we're landing in five minutes. And T-Bing's like, yes. He's like, oh my God, the motherland. He sees the misty hills of Kent and he's like, fuck yeah, I love Kent. Imagine getting a boner for Kent, like crazy. And he's like, yes, even though England was less than an hour from Paris, it was a bloody world away, it was. God, the way they carry on. Don't they all just carry on so much? And he's thinking, my time in France is over. I am returning to England victorious. The keystone has been found. Not by you, mate. Like it really fell into your lap. Like I know you orchestrated the death of Sonia. So yeah, you should take a little bit of credit, but like you didn't do a lot. And he's like already assuming they're going to find the Holy Grail, like in five minutes. He says, I have no idea where exactly it is, but I'm already tasting the glory. Uh, okay. So T-Bing, he gets up and he goes over to the far side of the cabin and he slides aside a wall panel to reveal a discreetly hidden wall safe. A wall safe on a plane, what a world. And he puts in the combination, opens the safe and takes out two passports. And he's like, oh, this is the documentation for Remy and myself. And then he also takes out a stack of 50 pound notes and he's like, and here's the documentation for you two, wink. Okay, but like who keeps their passports in the plane? That's so weird. Like you're- you're an English citizen living in Paris. Like you should have your passport on you all the time. Like not locked up in your plane. Like put it in your house. What the hell? And Sophie's like, what are you going to bribe them? That's, that's so unethical. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to fucking bribe them. Of course I am. A British customs official will greet us at the hangar and board the plane. And instead of, you know, allowing him to come on and finding the hostages, I'll just give him a little bit of a generous tip in exchange for his discretion. And Langdon. He's flawed. He goes, what? And the official will accept? And accept is in italics. And it says Langdon looked amazed. He's like completely shocked that bribery is a thing that happens. He's like, what? English customs officials would stoop that low? Like, yeah, no shit, Robert. How? This is the most shocked he's been all night. He was framed for murder. He's found himself on a holy grail quest. And this is what shocks him. And Tabing's like, well, they wouldn't normally accept a bribe, but like, I'm a knight. Like, I'm not an arms dealer. Like, they'll let me through. And so Tabing says to his manservant, Remy, (laughs) they still call him manservant, like five times per chapter. It's crazy. He says, I'm going to need you to stay on board with our guest until we return. We can't keep dragging the albino monk around London. And Sophie's like, Lee, like, I'm pretty sure the French police are going to find your plane before we get back to it. And Tabing's like, yeah. And imagine their surprise when they board and find Remy. Like, what? So they're going to find Remy and the albino locked up. Like, Remy will get in trouble. He's like laughing it off being like, ha ha, we'll elude them again. And it's like, okay, well, so Remy's just going to go to jail. And Sophie feels like she really needs to state the fucking obvious. She says, Lee, you transported a bound hostage across international borders. This is serious. And Lee goes, yes, so are my lawyers. Yeah, I don't know if that's how the law works, that you can just get away with things because you have good lawyers. Like, you took two fugitives over international borders with a hostage and you didn't have a flight plan and now you're bribing customs officials? Like... Maybe they could get you off a little bit of it, but like, these are big ones. These are big crimes. And he says, that animal broke into my home and almost killed me. That is a fact. 
and Remy will corroborate. And Langdon's like, yeah, but then you tied him up and flew him to London, fuckwit. Like, I'm sorry, it's not self-defense when you then go and take him across international waters, over the channel, no less. So then Teabing, he's so sure of himself. He starts acting out a little skit like he's pretending he's in the courtroom. And he says, your honor, forgive an eccentric old knight his foolish prejudice for the British court system. I know I should have called the French authorities, but I don't trust them. So I made the rash decision to go to England. Mia culpa, mia culpa. Like, I don't think that will fly. You're dreaming if that's your defense. And, but Langdon, he's like, oh, well, you know what? Coming from you, Lee, <laughs> that might just work. No, it wouldn't. I wanted to charge him in England rather than in France where the crime happened. Like, uh, I'm sorry, no. Just because you can't trust French lawyers, that's fucking bullshit. So then the pilot, he's like, oh, by the way, the tower just radioed. They've got some sort of gas leak over near the hangar. They want you to land at the terminal instead. And the pilot's like, yeah, it's a safety precaution. We're not meant to deplane until we get the all clear from airport authorities. And well, they're actually entertaining the idea. T-Bing's like, the pumping station is a good half mile from his hangar. So that must be a really big gas leak. It's like, no, sh- no, they've been given the tip off. They're clearly going to arrest you. Like, it's, it's not a gas leak, guys. And Remy, he's like, this sounds a bit irregular. And Eben goes, you know what? I have a suspicion that we are just about to be met by a welcoming committee. Yeah, of course. And Langdon gives a bleak sigh and he goes, well, I guess Fash still thinks I'm his man. Like, yes, why would he not? He's been under that pretty strong assumption all night long. Why? Just because you fled for London doesn't mean Fash is going to be like, oh, well, I guess it's not him. Like, you look more guilty. He's like, oh, well. I guess he still thinks it's me. Yeah, no shit, Robert. They are these people. They're all so smart, but so dumb. And Sophie, she's like, oh, he's too deep into this to admit his error. You've given him no indication that Robert isn't guilty. You fled the scene of the crime multiple times. And Teabing, he's just thinking, yeah, none of this matters. We can't lose sight of the grail. We're so close. And Langdon goes, look, all right, I'll turn myself in and sort it out legally. And you guys can just carry on. And Teabing's like, T-Bing's like, what? Do you really think they're going to let us go? Even though he just said he would get off. You know, he just plead mea culpa and say that he hates the French legal system. But now he's like, of course, we're not going to get let go. I just transported you illegally. So he's completely changing his narrative. He says, and you know, Miss Naveau, she assisted in your escape from the Louvre. And we've got a guy tied up in the back of the plane. So like, yeah, we're all in this together. And Sophie's like, well, why don't we just land at a different airport? And T-Bing goes, well, no, if we pull up now, by the time we get clearance anywhere else, our welcoming party will include army tanks. Maybe then don't get clearance. Like you're already committing so many crimes, just land anywhere. So T-Bing, he's like, well, time to bribe the pilot again. And it says, T-Bing wondered how much it would cost him to persuade his pilot to perform one highly irregular maneuver. End of chapter. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And then we go to chapter 81, and the hawker is on final approach. And now we're getting the perspective from some guy who works at the airport, the Biggin Hill Airport. Like, I'm sorry. I do quite like the changing perspectives and POV narration, but like, do I really need the input from the flight controller at Biggin Hill Airport? Like, no, I don't. And we're getting the full fucking story. Oh, the full fucking story about how he got woken up early on a Saturday morning. He'd been called in to oversee the arrest of one of his most lucrative clients. Usually they'd turn a blind eye to teabing and he'd bribe them with a per landing fee, blah, 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 blah. Like it's the longest paragraph I've ever seen. It's almost a whole entire page just with his backstory. I do not care about Simon Edwards, executive services officer of Biggin Hill Airport. So what he's saying is they turn a blind eye to teabing because he's always smuggling in luxurious French foods like escargot. Well, I, I didn't even think Tebing liked France that much, but apparently he's smuggling in escargot when he goes for his doctor visits. This is all bullshit. And so he says, though, the British police did not generally carry weapons. Is that a known fact? That's news to me. The gravity of the situation had brought out an armed response team. So eight policemen with handguns stood inside the terminal, awaiting the moment when the plane's engines powered down. So the plan is, once that happens, a runway attendant would put safety wedges under the tyres so the plane could no longer move. Then the police would step into view and be like, surprise, and then hold them all at bay until the French police arrived to handle the situation. So then the plane's very slowly landing and we get Simon Edwards watching the whole thing. So the plane lands, but then it coasts past the terminal, heading towards the hangar in the distance, plot twist. And so all the police, all the police spun and stared at Simon and said, I thought you said the pilot agreed to come to the terminal. And Edwards is like, well, he did. So who said that? All the police said that. All of them in unison said, I thought you said the pilot agreed to come to the terminal. So then Simon, he's wedged in a police car and they're racing across the tarmac, heading towards the hangar. So then the plane taxis into the hangar and they can no longer see it. And then they stop outside the hangar door and then they go in with their guns drawn and Edwards is still there. Simon Edwards, he's still hanging about. 
And so the plane is now facing outwards because it did a little loop-de-loop so it could point nose out for when it leaves next time. And now it's stopped by the point they get there. So all the police are pointing the guns at the pilot and he's like, what? And then T-Bing opens up the doorway and he's like, oh, hi, everybody. He says, Simon, because his best buddies with Simon. Did I win the policeman's lottery while I was away? So now T-Bing's Meryl Streep and he's bloody banging it on. And Simon's like, oh yeah, sorry, sir, but uh, we had a gas leak and your pilot said he was coming to the terminal. And T-Bing's like, yeah, well, screw that. I don't believe in gas leaks. I'm late for an appointment. I pay for this hangar and this rubbish about avoiding a gas leak seemed overcautious. So what T-Bing's doing is, he's just like, I've got to go guys. Like, I know your eight policemen pointing a gun at me, but like, I've got an appointment, a doctor's appointment to go to. But like, is it not 6 a.m.? What doctor is open up before 9am? Like, I'm sorry. How are you already late when you're landing at daybreak? That doesn't make any sense. And he says, yeah, I know it's off schedule, but the new medication gives me the tingles. So I thought I'd just come for a tune up. And Simon's like, well, sounds about right. Okay. Very well. Off you go. And then the police are like, wait, no, (laughs) like, um, no, you need to stay on board for like another half hour or so. And T-Bing's like, that's impossible. I have an appointment with my doctor, a medical appointment at 6 a.m. And I can't afford to miss it. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, realistically, if you delayed your 30-minute appointment to go see an English doctor, like, you'd be fine. Like, if it was that much of an emergency, you'd just see a doctor in Paris. Like, excuse me. But Simon's convinced. Simon's like, oh, this poor bastard, he needs to go to his appointment. So the Kent chief inspector, he's like, nah, um, I'm here at the orders of the French judicial police. Again, because the Kent police take orders from the Paris police. That makes sense. He says, they claim you were transporting fugitives from the law on this plane. And T-Bing's like, oh, 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 it's just one of those hidden camera programs. Jolly good. So T-Bing thinks he's getting punked. And the police, he's like, no, this is serious, sir. We heard you have a hostage on board. So then the manservant appears in the doorway. And he goes, I feel like a hostage working for Sir Lee, (laughs) but he assures me I'm free to go whenever I want. Okay, the jokes. Remy, you overdid it. T-Bing was doing the Meryl Streep. And so Remy was like, I could be Nicky Kidman, but no, he's no Nicky Kidman because that sounded so fake. And so then Remy's like, you know what? We are really running late. How? The sun just came up. How are you late already? And if it's anything like my doctor, you'll get there and still wait in the waiting room for an hour and a half. So like, I think you'll be fine. And T-Bing just keeps a limousine in the hangar to get around England. So Remy's like, I'll go bring the car around. And the chief inspector's like, uh, no. Like, just because you're late to see a fucking doctor does not mean you can leave that aircraft. So not getting anywhere with the police, T-Bing narrows in on Simon. And he's like, Simon... God, Simon, this is crazy. It's just little old me, little old T-Bing and manservant Remy. He says, hey, how about you just go on board, verify that the plane's empty and then let the police know. And so Simon's like, yeah, all right. And the Kent chief inspector, he says, the devil you will. He's like, of of course I'm not letting some pleb from the airport, the Biggin Hill airport. Like maybe if it was Heathrow, I'd trust him, but Biggin Hill, like, nah, I'm not letting you go out there and, and checking if there's prisoners and hostages on board. Bullshit. So the police inspector, he's like, well, I'll go have a look. And T-Bing, he's like, no, you bloody well won't. This is my private property. Get a warrant. So they're at an impasse. And then T-Bing's like, look, I, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm really quite late. So I'm leaving. So ballsy, this T-Bing. He's like, oh, I'm leaving. Bye. 
He says, if it's that important to you to stop me, you'll just have to shoot me. And the chief inspector, he's like considering it. He's thinking, men of privilege always felt like they were above the law. Well, they're not. And so he goes, stop, I will fire. And he's got his gun pointed at T-Bing's back. And T-Bing just turns around and he goes, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> he says, my lawyers will serve your testicles for breakfast. Ugh. What? And if you dare board my plane without a warrant, your spleen will follow. Okay. The threat seems turned around. Like you can't threaten my testicles and then escalate it with my spleen. Take my spleen. I don't know what a spleen does. Uh, is the spleen one of those organs that doesn't do anything that you can lose or you can lose a lot of it? Like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't care about my spleen, but my testicles, like I'll need those bad boys. Like you had me at testicles. You don't need to go and threaten the spleen. That's unnecessary. But he's got English lawyers, so I bet they could do it. French lawyers? No, no, God, no. But English lawyers? Yeah. And so the policeman, we don't get his name. He's just called the chief inspector constantly. He says, technically Teabing was correct. The police did need a warrant to board the jet, but because the flight had originated in France and because the powerful Bezoufash had given his authority, the chief inspector, <laughs> no name, felt certain his career would be far better served by finding out what was on this plane that Teabing seemed so intent on hiding. What? Uh, technically, I do need a warrant, but Bezu Fash said I could. This police officer from a different country. How, how is that going to help his career? That someone from France has given you an order, so you've broken the rules of the country that you're in, and you expect that to serve you. This guy's an idiot. So this guy, the inspector, no name inspector, he's like, I'm boarding the plane. I'm searching the plane. And Teabing's like, you'll regret it. Do not even think of boarding that plane. And so the inspector, (laughs) Inspector Gadget, he goes up and he boards the plane. And so he looks at the hatch, he peers inside and then he's like, oh, what the devil? He's like, there's no one in there. And he checks the bathrooms, the chairs and the luggage areas and he finds no one. And so he's like, oh, well, (laughs) bad tip. Like he doesn't even consider that they might've already snuck out. Like, d- doesn't even consider it. He thinks, what the hell was Bezu Fash thinking? It seemed Lee Teabing had been telling the truth. So he's like, ah, oh, shit. And so then he goes, all right, let them go. What? I still think you should just wait out for half an hour until the police come. Like the proper French police, not you sh- piece of shit police. I think you should at least wait. But he's like, nah, let him go. We got a bad tip. Bye. Just waves them off. And Teabing's like, well, you're going to get a call from my lawyers. And for future reference, the French police cannot be trusted. God, he's got to get a dig in there, doesn't he? He hates France so much. Like it started as like a little cute character trait with his driveway intercom being on the wrong side of the road, like super fucking annoying, but like, all right, a cute little character trait. But now it's a bit much. You Stop ragging on France. You're taking it too far. So the manservant opens the door of the limo and helped his crippled master in the back seat. Again, we don't need to know that he's crippled. I haven't mentioned it, but every time Teabing was walking throughout this hangar, it was described as him hobbling. <laughs> and now the crippled guy's getting into the seat. Like, <sighs> we know he's crippled. It's, a, it's, a, it's bad taste. It's bad taste. And the police are just like, all right, have a good day. Have fun at your appointment. And Teabing says to the manservant, he goes, well played, good man. And then he turns around and he says, everyone comfy. And oh my God, Langdon and Sophie and the bound and gagged Albino. Again, you don't need to keep calling him an Albino. They're in the limo. Wow. And so we get a flashback. (laughs) A Dan Brown special. We get a flashback to moments earlier. Apparently when the plane went into the hangar, they just jumped out. 
and they hit up the back of the hangar and squatted and jumped into the limo and just crouched in the limo the whole time. Why did the police not ever think to check the limo? Why, why did they assume they were like locked onto the plane? Like, of course they didn't buy that story about the gas leak. Like what? The, the, the Kent police are so dumb. So now as the limousines racing towards Kent, they're all like settling in and Teabing gives them a roguish smile and he opens up the cabinet on the limo's bar and says, could I offer you a drink? Some nibblies? Again with the nibblies. At least this one does seem to be more well-stocked. He goes, we've got crisps, we've got nuts, we've got seltzer. And they're both like, no, we don't want any of your shitty old crisps again. Like fool me once, Teabing. We just had an old cracker and a dirty warm can of Coke on the plane. Like I don't need these old nuts. And Teabing goes, all right then, about this night's tomb, end of chapter. So we pick up immediately with chapter 82 and Langdon saying Fleet Street, there's a crypt on Fleet Street. So I guess Lee had just said, I think it's on Fleet Street. And Lee is being super annoying about it. It says he's being playfully cagey about where he thought they would find the Knight's Tomb. So he's doing that thing that they all do where he's like, I know where it is, but not revealing it. Why they all do that, I don't know. And also he's completely wrong. Like we as the reader know now, having read the book, seen the movie, blah, 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 that he's completely wrong, but he's so confident and so annoying. And so he says to Sophie like, hey, read out the rest of that verse, will ya? Give the Harvard boy one more shot, just making fun of Robert. And yes, I, would, I wouldn't mind to hear the verse myself since we haven't heard it. Oh, and the other thing is they had all decided to leave the box and the larger cryptex behind on the plane. Smart move, smart move. You don't wanna be schlepping that around London, nuh-uh. So Langdon's reading it again, but he still, had, still doesn't know what he's talking about. It says, in London lies a knight, a Pope interred, his labor's fruit to holy wrath incurred. You seek the orb that ought be on his tomb. It speaks of rosy flesh and seeded womb. Okay. They're not going to solve this for a long time, but I'm here to tell you, the code is Apple. Apple. Boring old Apple. The dumbest, (laughs) the dumbest answer that that ever could have been written for that riddle. But uh, when you read it, it makes sort of sense. His labor's fruit. I mean, it speaks of rosy flesh and seeded womb. I don't want to give myself too much credit, but I think reading that I'd be like, let's just, let's just try Apple. I'd be like, guys, hand me the cryptex. Like, I know it won't be this. Like, that'd be so silly if it was this, but like, let me just, let me just chuck in Apple. Or, or, you know, like it's worth a shot. Rosy flesh, seeded womb. That's where my mind goes. Like seeds in a fruit, obviously. Except Robert's like, oh, well, rosy flesh and seeded womb. That's a clear allusion to Mary Magdalene, the rose who bore the seed of Jesus. Can we stop talking about semen as seed? Like that's gross. And I don't think we should be talking about Mary Magdalene's womb as rosy flesh. Yuck. Uh, uh, Obviously that's a clear allusion. Like, and Langdon's like, nah, no clue. And Teabing's like, no thoughts, huh? And he's chuckling. He's like, and Langdon sensed the Royal historian was enjoying being one up, even though he's wrong. And he's like, what about you, Soph? And she's like, nah. And he goes, and he goes, what would you two do without me? Oh, he's milking it. He's so annoying. And he's wrong. He says, well, let me walk you through it. It's quite simple, really. And they're like, yeah, okay, tell us. And he goes, well, the first line is the key. Could you read it again, please? And like, he knows what the first line is. He's memorized it, but he makes Langdon read it out loud, which is just so condescending. And so he says, in London lies a knight, a pope interred. And Teabing's like, "Uh uh-huh, a knight, a pope interred. What does that mean to you? 
And Langdon's like, fuck, mate, just tell me. Like, I don't know, a knight buried by a pope. A knight whose funeral was presided over by a pope. And Langdon's like, (laughs) he's like, oh, that's rich. Always the optimist, Robert. Like, just tell them. Tell them your wrong theory. And he says, look at the second line, Robert, you dummy. Even though he did just ask Robert to read out the first line only. Now he's like, you forgot about the second line, you idiot. The knight obviously did something that incurred the wrath of the church. Think again, dummy. Consider the dynamic between the church and the Knights Templar. And Sophie's like, okay, well, did a knight get killed by a Pope perhaps? And Teabing's like, well done, my dear. And he's patting her knee. Ugh. Oh my God. Like what a creeper. Don't pat her knee. You big feral feralson. That's disgusting. And he's like, yeah, a knight, a Pope buried or killed. And so then they're flashing back to the Friday the 13th when the Pope killed all the Knights Templar. Okay. And Langdon's like, there must be heaps of people. Like, a lot of people got killed by the Pope. And Teabing's like, ah, 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 not so, you stupid Harvard dummy. Many of them were burned at the stake or tossed into the river. But this poem refers to a tomb, a tomb in London. And there's only a few knights buried in London. And so they're like, okay, well, just tell us. And so then Teabing's like, guys, are you really not getting it? And he goes, fine. He goes, Robert, for heaven's sake, the church built in London by the Priory's military arm, the Knights Templar themselves. And Langdon's like, ah, the Temple Church. Like I've heard of that. So there's a fucking church in London made by the Knights Templar who protected the bloody Holy Grail for decades and decades and centuries. And they never thought of it. They never thought of it. And Robert's like, oh yeah, I've heard of that church, the Temple Church. Like, oh yeah. He's like, yeah, I've written about it in my book. Never visited. What the, how is he qualified to write a book about the Knights Templar? And if he's not, no, he's not even visited the Temple Church. This, he's, oh, he's startled by it. He's like, oh, there's a crypt there, is there? Like, you should know. You've written about it. And then he gives us the backstory. It was once the epicenter of all Templar and Priory activities. It had been named in honor of Solomon's temple. Tales abounded of knights performing strange rituals within the temple's church. Ah, uh, why, would, why would you not have ever thought of that? And Langdon, again, who's written about this in his book, he's come across this in, in other studies and he's like, oh, so that's on Fleet Street, is it? Like, how, how do you not know? You were no authority on the Knights Templar, you, you schmuck. And Teabing goes, well, actually it's off Fleet Street. <laughs> it's not even on Fleet Street. Why do we bring up Fleet Street? <laughs> He says, I wanted to see you sweat a little more before I gave it away. And Robert's like, oh, thanks. As if he hasn't done that to Sophie all night. And as if Sophie hasn't done it to them as well at different points in time. And Teabing's like, yeah, most people don't even know it exists. People don't know it's even there. It's an eerie old place. And so the whole thing about the church is that it's built round. It's a round building. It's not built like a cross like other churches. Who gives a toss? So that's Teabing's big brainwave that got stretched out into five pages. So their plan is just to go to the Temple Church off of Fleet Street, but not on Fleet Street, just a side street from Fleet Street. Look at the 10 tombs there and find one that's missing an orb. And Langdon's like, holy shit, this is it. He's like, crack a jack, we've got this. If the missing orb revealed the password, they'd be able to open the second cryptex. He's like, yes, we jagged it. And he says on the plane, they did try all the obvious stuff. So they tried Grail, variations of spelling on Grail, Venus, Maria. Jesus, Sarah, you know, because Jesus had a kid called Sarah. They try all of that, but nothing. He says, apparently there existed some other five letter reference to the Rose's seeded womb, which is everything we already know. So that's just, okay. Reiterating what we're, what we're up to. Okay. And so Remy's like, 
hey, I might need some directions. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I know I'm a all rounder as a manservant, but I'm used to just driving to the hospital. I don't know how to get to fucking Fleet Street or any side streets off of Fleet Street. So can someone help me out? So Lee just goes and helps him, but he rolls his eyes. He's like, oh, fine. So that leaves Sophie and Robert up the back. And Sophie says to him, Robert, nobody knows that you and I are in England. I mean, they, they, they've got a strong hunch. And Langdon's like, oh my God, she's right. The Kent police would tell Fash the plane was empty and Fash would have to assume that they were still in France. So he's like, fuck yeah, we jagged it. We're invisible. Lee's little stunt had bought them a lot of time. Wow, they're really, really disregarding the cognitive powers of the French police. He can pull one over the Kent police, but I'm sorry, Bezu Fash of the DCPJ, he's not gonna crumble so easily. And Langdon's even thinking, he's like, maybe Fash is part of this. Maybe he's part of the plot and that's why he's trying to stitch me up. <sighs> they're idiots. I think Fash got a hot tip from Aaron Garossa or something about Robert Langdon, but they're like, why is he, why has he got a boner for me? Why does he keep thinking that I've killed Sonia? Cause you fled the scene of the crime. Because there was evidence you got caught in a lie that you never knew him and you were never going to meet him. And yet in his date book, it said that you were meeting him that night that he died. He wrote, find Robert Langdon on the floor. And he's like, wow, what, what has Fash got against me? I just don't get it. <laughs> you threw a bar of soap out of the Louvre window. I mean, uh, oh, I don't need to get into this again. But Robert's thinking Fash is religious and he's intent on pinning these murders on me. Yeah, because you're the prime suspect. I hate to say it. And so Sophie, she says, Robert, I'm sorry you're involved, but I'm very glad you're here. So you're not sorry. And the comment sounded more pragmatic than romantic, yet Langdon felt an unexpected flicker of attraction between them. Not the time nor the place, Robert. Keep it in your pants. Keep it in your pants. And she says, Robert, my grandfather asked me to trust you. Not really. He just said, P.S. find Robert Langdon. And that was it everything else you're reading into, but she's like, I'm glad I listened to him for once. Listen to him. What? She's like, Robert, I think you've done everything he would have wanted. He'd probably want to be alive still. But she goes, somehow I feel closer to my grandfather tonight than I have in years. I know he would be happy about that. Or he'd rather be alive when you reconnect, perhaps. Maybe you should have answered his phone call last week instead of waiting until he got brutally murdered to listen to him. Oh, she's so stupid. So then the skyline of London starts to appear before them. And Robert has this bizarre paragraph where he talks about the London Eye. He's like, yeah, I once tried to go on the London Eye, but the viewing capsules reminded me of a sarcophagus. So I didn't go up the London Eye and I just walked around the city instead. Like, okay, thanks. We uh, we get it. You're afraid of elevators and things. Like, okay. Why was anyone clamoring to know Robert's thoughts on the London Eye? Like, (sighs) So Sophie pulls him back into the present. She squeezes his knee. Because remember, he does this to her all the time. She's in a conversation with him and he zones out and starts thinking about his own flashbacks. So she's like pulling him back to the present. She goes, hey, what do you think we should do with the documents if we ever find them? And he realized that she'd been speaking to him. (laughs) So he does zone her out. That's hilarious. And he goes, I don't, doesn't matter what I think. Like, it's your decision. And she's like, yeah, but what's your opinion? And he goes, I don't have an opinion. And she says, well, you wrote about it in your book, so you must have an opinion. And he goes, nah, I don't really have an opinion. And she's like, well, my grandfather told me to find you. So he read your book. He must at least agree with whatever you said in your book. And he's like, well, I didn't really make a judgment call in my book. He's stonewalling her so hard. Like, just, just come out with it, Robert. Make a fucking judgment call. You're just giving her advice. You're not telling her what to do. And he's like, I don't presume. And she's like, well, look, you wrote a book about the Holy Grail. So clearly 
you feel that the information should be shared. And he's like, "Mm, not so much. It's different talking hypothetically to actually doing it. And she's like, well, you're fucking useless. And he's like, yeah, it's different presenting to the world thousands of ancient documents as scientific evidence that the New Testament is false testimony. And okay, thousands of documents? All this reference to documents, I didn't, I didn't know there were thousands of them. And Sophie's still trying to get something out of him. And she's like, well, you said the New Testament was fake. And he's like, yeah, but what's faith than believing in things that have no evidence behind it? And I'm like, well, that's not an answer, Robert. And so she's like, well, so you're in favor of the documents being buried forever. And he's like, oh, I'm a historian. I don't really have any input or, or, or opinions about it. And it's like, what the fuck? She goes, you're arguing both sides of my question. And he's like, oh, am I? Oh, God. he is so infuriating. He says some bullshit about the religious allegory becoming part of the fabric of reality and living in that reality helps people cope and be better people. So it's all metaphors, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, okay, but what do I do? And he's like, I don't know. He goes, well, you believe in the number pi because it helps break codes. And she's like, well, that's completely different. And he goes, is it? (laughs) And then he goes, what was your question again? And she goes, I can't remember. And he goes, works every time. So he was trying to deflect by being a dickhead and it worked. And that's the end of the chapter. What an infuriating person, infuriating. And he's still wearing that dumb Mickey Mouse watch because I just glanced over to the start of the next chapter and he's reading his Mickey Mouse watch and it's 7.30, okay. So at least we know the time. I was wondering what the time was at 7.30. Oh boy, let me know your thoughts, questions, concerns, grievances, etc. Head on over to the Patreon if you want to hear about Anastasia Steele getting stooped on a yacht. We just read this really weird chapter where Christian's like, don't pee baby. And then they had sex and then like, he didn't let her go to the bathroom for some reason. I'm still turning that one over in my little noggin. No idea what the hell that was about. And then he gave her hickeys on her boobs because she got her boobs out on the beach and he doesn't want her to do that. So he just gave her hickeys on her boobs against her will. Yeah, a lot going on there. So just go to patreon.com slash breaking down bad books if that floats your boat. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.